Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic, and this is the third Sunday of Advent. You know, we naturally categorize people. We categorize men from women, rich from poor, old from young, popular to unpopular, because it helps to place uh, other people in a context, and we want to understand the people around us. Currently, there is much discussion about categorizing by identity to understand how people will act. Well, a good example is if the police categorize people, it's called profiling. Now, that can be a bad thing, according to some critics, if, it's, if it seems to promote racist stereotypes. But when politicians and their advisors categorize people, well, that's their stock in trade, saying, if you're from this racial group, you're going to vote for our party. Well, but everyone knows that that isn't necessarily so. Um, stereotypes do play a role because there's some truth in them. But stereotypes, categorizations, don't always describe individuals. So, for instance, um, people of African-American ancestry are not supposed to vote Republican. But Justice Clarence Thomas, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, and Michael Steele, the current Republican national chairman, are all basically conservative Republicans. But on the other hand, Catholics are supposed to vote pro-life. But Joe Biden, a nationally recognized Catholic who holds a rosary in his hand as he campaigns, is about as pro-choice a Democrat as you can hope to find. You know, another way categorization kind of works into our national consciousness is that Hispanic voters are supposed to be a slam dunk for the Democrats. But you know, the election didn't turn out that way. Although only a minority of Hispanic voters cast their ballots for Donald Trump in the November presidential election, it was something less than half. But the size of that minority was much larger than most had predicted. Uh, Georgetown University presented an initiative on Catholic social thought and public life to consider the phenomena of Hispanic voting in the 2020 election. Alejandra Molina, who grew up in Southern California, uh, had this to say about the Hispanic vote. She's a uh, reporter for Religion News, I think it is. Anyway, she said, Many people are realizing that we can't see Latinos as a monolith. I grew up in Southern California, said Molina, who attends a Jesuit parish in Los Angeles. The Mexican community is super different from Central Americans, Salvadorans, and Guatemalans, she said. And California Latinos are different from Tejas Latinos and Florida Latinos. In interviews with Hispanic voters, their faith did come up a lot, Molina said. Abortion is very important to many Latino Catholic voters. Moreover, Latinos still connect mass deportations with former President Barack Obama and President-elect Joe Biden, and not with President Trump. Well, that was reported in Catholic News Service. There are truths in stereotyping in some general sense. That's why we do it. However, the exceptions will always stand out, and categories don't really explain individuals. Everybody's got their own story. Everybody's got their own path. So what happens when the known categories are simply inadequate? What happens if you try to profile 
Jesus of Nazareth and John the Baptist. Where's it going to get you? And that's what the gospel's about today, and pretty much the entire gospel from beginning to end. John the Baptist and the inadequacies of categories. The gospel describes in the third Sunday of Advent how priests and Levites come down from Jerusalem to question John the Baptist, who's baptizing people on the Jordan River where Israel had crossed over under Joshua after Moses' death. And so John the Baptist is, is talking about a new exodus, a, a new entry into a new holy land. And the priests and the Levites are obviously sent down there by the powers that be uh, to figure this out because John is the son of a priest. Um, Zechariah, his dad, is a priest. So here's how the gospel recounts the story. And I'm just going to go through it point by point. This is the testimony of John. And when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, who are you? Point one, he admitted and did not deny, but admitted I'm not the Christ. Okay, well, John denied that he's the anointed one of Israel. Christ comes from the word Christos, which is where we get the word chrism, because prophets and kings are anointed in ancient Israel. And so everyone, if you've been coming to church for a while, have heard about Jesus the Messiah and the messianic hopes of Israel. It all goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the earliest prophecy, not the only, of this uh, messianic figure. And clearly it's about a king because the prophet Nathan says uh, to uh, King David that the Lord told him that, quote, I will establish your royal throne forever, period, end quote. That's in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 7. Well, you got to admit, forever is a long time. And so what is that messianic prophecy? So then the priests and Levites asked this question. So then they asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Well, the prophet Malachi, one of the, in, not the newest of the prophets, but it's the last book in the Old Testament because that's where we put it. The prophet Malachi had wedded Jewish expectations for return of the prophet Elijah. And he said this at the very end of Malachi, easiest verse to find. Just go to the end of chapter 3 of Malachi. Now I am sending to you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes, that great and terrible day. Malachi, third chapter, 23rd verse. Well, Elijah was supposed to return to announce the day of the Lord, according to Malachi and Sirach, because according to 1 Kings, this again is going all the way back to the early uh, uh, kingship of Israel. Uh, Elijah didn't die, but he was carried to heaven in a fiery chariot and a whirlwind, uh, from which at some point he might return. His, his protege, Elisha, watched him go up. That's 2 Kings 2.11. And so subsequent Jewish history reasoned that before the Lord came, he'd send one of his great prophets, who is Elijah, to kind of prepare the way. And you know, Jesus will end up saying in the Gospels that St. John is in the spirit of Elijah, or he is Elijah if you can accept it. So then the chief priests and the Levites 
asked this question, are you the prophet? He answered, no, uh, I'm not the prophet. Well, this was a reference. This is a rare one that people don't think about. But it's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22, where Moses said to the people that, that the Lord will raise up a prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kindred. That is the one to whom you shall listen. So it's this future prophet like Moses who will give the law and instruct the people. And so that's what you should consider when in Matthew and Luke's gospel, Jesus go well, in Matthew's gospel, he goes up to the top of a mountain, like Moses went up to the top of a mountain, and he delivers the Beatitudes because he's assuming the teaching posture of Moses. So when you're thinking about categories, well, John the Baptist doesn't do that, but Jesus does it. And so... Uh, the fourth question the priests and the Levites asked John the Baptist, well, if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the end-time prophet Moses spoke of, who are you so we can give an answer to those who sent us? What do you have to say for yourself? And here's what John the Baptist said, and you have heard this before. I am the voice of one crying out on the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Well, that's right out of Isaiah from last week, chapter 40. This was the first reading on the second Sunday of Advent because the first part of Advent is always about Old Testament prophecy, setting up expectations um, for our celebration of the incarnation at Christmas. So John isn't a prophet. John's not the end-time prophet. John's not the Messiah. He sees himself as the fulfillment of a prophecy. And that prophecy is from Isaiah. And that he is dressed out in the wilderness in animal hides and eaten off the land. Uh, he's standing out in the desert and he's calling for repentance. Um, and so what happens when you don't see yourself as a prophet but the fulfillment of a prophecy? So then some Pharisees were also sent and they asked him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, relational, forgiveness of sins. This would be understandable in Jewish terms. But then John says, there is one among you whom you do not recognize, the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. Well, the one whom you don't recognize, the one that's the outlier, the one that is busting all the categories. And that is the problem of Jesus. How do you talk about who Jesus is? And how did Jesus talk about himself? And that's the first part, the third part of this podcast. I know you've heard all of these things before, but I'm trying to put it into an understanding of how other people thought about the Messiah, but how Jesus thought about and explained himself, because they're not exactly the same thing. Jesus is not any easier to fit into a category than was John the Baptist. Jesus said that he's something greater than a prophet like Jonah. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, the prophet, according to the Lord. So Jesus says John's a, a prophet, but he himself, something more. When Jesus and his disciples turned toward Jerusalem and thus towards his death, 
Jesus brought up this very problem of categories. And I know you remember this. He asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? And his disciples respond to you well. John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Now think about that, that little interchange, because Jesus doesn't say you're right about that. What if John the Baptist and Elijah and these old prophets all have in common? What they all have in common is that they're all dead. And so when Peter says, you're the Messiah, well, the Messiah was supposed to be a warrior king. The Messiah was supposed to be a priest. The Messiah was supposed to be a prophet. Jesus actually never admitted to being the Messiah until his trial in front of the Sanhedrin. Isn't that interesting? Because to say it there would assure that he would be killed. And so is that why he waited? So that his death came at a time when, when he was ready, uh, his work had been done? How can you really know? He said that everything was fulfilled, so maybe that's the answer. But the conventional understanding of that Messiah category were obviously inadequate to the reality of someone who walked on water, raised people from the dead, and made water into wine, amongst other activities. He did not advocate the violent overthrow of Rome like the zealots. Uh, he said instead that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on which gospel you read, is not of this world. His priesthood is exercised in the temple of his body. Remember, he's tearing down this temple and it'll be raised up in three days. And that temple is the church where he is worshipped in our bodies. It's not an ancient building in Jerusalem. So the categories are all shifting. And that's why Judaism and Christianity talk about the same things but mean different things by them. I'm not sure that you've ever thought about that. For the Jews, the temple is still that old building that was torn down in Jerusalem. For us, the temple is the church, the risen body of Christ. And so by Jewish standards, Jesus is not the Messiah, not at least in any conventional Jewish sense at the time of his death. Although he is condemned as king of the Jews in all four gospels. And so he was thought to be a Messiah in conventional terms. That's probably why the temple authorities wanted him dead, clearly why the Romans wanted to kill him. So what do you make of all the categories? Well, let's flip it around. Let's not ask what other people thought Jesus was, what categories they, they saw him fitting into, although he was interested in how they saw him. But Jesus, how does he refer to himself? I know this is very familiar to you, but I'm not sure if you've thought about the implications of it. Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a figure from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is a book that's written at the time that the Greeks have overrun Palestine. And this is a time of a great civil war and great suffering in Jewish history. Uh, it's the story of Maccabees 1 and 2, the story of Daniel, and it, it's really a critical understanding uh, for how Jesus talks about himself. That's why in the Protestant Bibles, the Apocrypha, where uh, Daniel, I think, parts are in and parts are out, they're very picky about this stuff. But you can't cut this stuff out because Jesus uses it 
It's why the Apocrypha really has to be part of the Bible and why it's part of the Catholic Bible. But in Daniel 7, in Daniel's, in Daniel's dream vision, he saw four gigantic beasts rising from the sea. There was a winged lion, a bear with three ribs of the creature it was eating, hanging from its jaws. There was a leopard with four heads. And the fourth beast is so twisted, so perverted, that it's really unclassifiable. And the fourth beast devours or tramples everything in its path, including the other beasts. So in this vision, Daniel sees in, in opposition to these four powerful beasts, he sees, quote, one like a son of man. Um, or like a human being. It's obviously a human figure. And this figure is the opposite of the beast. The beast come from the sea, but this figure in Daniel comes down from heaven. I saw one like a human being, Daniel said, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14. Now that is Jesus' self-description. Isn't that interesting? And that has the resonance of Nathan's messianic prophecy to David, but it's different than conventional king language. Conventional kings don't descend from heaven. Daniel 7 seems bizarre because it's highly symbolic in third century BC coded language. But it's clearly uh, about this godlike creature, in Daniel at least, coming from heaven. When the four beasts probably stand for the successive world empires that have all pounded Israel, each more bestial and wicked than the last. Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, and the empire of Alexander the Great, that's the Greeks. They all arise from and bring out chaos. If there's any order, it's the order of dominance. It's what St. Augustine said to us, uh, that the pirates said to Alexander the Great. He said, the pirates said to Alexander the Great, is the only difference between you and me is I have one little ship and I go around stealing from people. You have a bunch of ships and a massive army, and you steal from everybody. Well, that's not much of a difference. It's uh, only in quantity, not in quality. So this is how the early Christians looked at the violence of these ancient empires. And they all survived on dominance, oppression, and violence. And that is nothing but contempt for human beings. Well... That's the problem of force and violence in the world. But the Son of Man, that is not the category he fits in. Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. Jesus doesn't kill anyone. Jesus doesn't advocate violence. Instead, Jesus overcomes death by the self-offering of his life. It's turning the world upside down. And so the Son of Man in Daniel puts all the nonsense of earthly kingdoms to an end. So, what do you make of all these categories? And that is going to bring us to our conclusion. Jesus Christ busts the categories. 
Well, the truly human reunites heaven and the human, inaugurating a truly human society coming entirely from God, not built on violence, but on nonviolence, even to the point of death. Well, it returns the image of the human being to that person, man and woman, residing at peace with her creator in the Garden of Eden. That's the image of the kingdom of heaven. So in this is its power revealed as mightier than the strength of all the great powers in the world empires, that the Christian martyr absorbs the worst that the world has to send and then rises from the dead. And that's why since the time of the early church to the present, the martyrs are revered. You know, think about the role of martyrs in the Christmas season. Christmas is December 25. The feast of St. Stephen, the first deacon martyrs, whose feast is celebrated the day after Christmas, December 26. So right out of the liturgical year, right after Christmas, the church is holding up the example of martyrs. Because scripture records that the first martyrs in reality were the holy innocents slaughtered by Herod the Great, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, whose feast is celebrated, still in the Christmas season, on December 28. Then mostly all the apostles are martyred. And then all of those in the generation after the apostles. There's St. Polycarp of Smyrna who was martyred around the turn of the second century. St. Ignatius of Antioch who knew Polycarp and was martyred soon after Polycarp's death. St. Justin Martyr, my, one of my patron saints, martyred at the end of the second century the first great uh, uh, Christian apologist. In fact, in when we two um, Eucharistic prayer number one, and you hear all the names of the martyrs, that's called the Roman martyrology, almost all of them are martyrs in the first, third century. And they're all martyrs in the first three centuries, mostly in Rome, but really from everywhere. And then the number of women who are in that second list and if you look up their stories, almost all of them are martyred because they refused to be forced into marriage, marriages that were abusive with Roman pagan men who just wanted their property. They wanted more for their lives. So it wasn't just the domination of these empires. It's violence written into the relationship between male and female. These women are martyrs to the sanctity of marriage and the restored unity of man and woman. And, you know, the list of martyrs continues to grow to this very day. There are the martyrs to a militant Islam. Who can forget the pictures of those Coptic Christians um, who were, had their throats cut by these um, Islamic thugs? Then there's Archbishop Oscar Romero, uh, who was shot to death while saying Mass, Blessed Stanley Rother, our bishop, was his procurator back in Oklahoma City when he was the pastor in Father Rother's home parish. Uh, and he will be canonized someday, I suspect. Uh, and then all those others victimized by violence in Central America. Lots of human beings witnessing to Christ with their deaths. Jesus remarks in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. People seem to have trouble with that passage. It makes perfect sense. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is among you, he refers to himself. 
And so when the kingdom of heaven is taken by force, it's anybody who is killed in his name. He talks about it, doesn't he, in his beatitudes? Blessed are you when they persecute you falsely because of my name. Well, anyway, this understanding of the martyrs as the witnesses uh, to Jesus, it's really present in today's gospel. Now think about it. Categories reveal and conceal. Jesus is the king, the prophet, the priest, the temple, but not in the way that ancient or first century Jews thought about it. But he's also called by other names. He's called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. St. John says in his gospel on Christmas morning that he's the logos, that is the ultimate coherence of reality, the word of wisdom spoken by God. Um, he's called the son of God by his disciples. But he refers to himself as the Son of Man, that last figure in time that brings an end to all the nonsense of sin and violence and domination that ultimately runs our world. It's worshipped as a god from the time of the Greeks to the present, probably going back further than that. In his death, violence did not overcome him. In his resurrection, a new life is revealed. So when John the Baptist answered the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem, he said, and this is the part from the gospel today, they asked him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but there is one among you whom you do not recognize, the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. Well, John the Evangelist, writing some years later, simply referred to John the Baptist as he did today in the gospel. And he said of this about John, A man named John was sent from God and came for testimony to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. That was the beginning of the gospel today. You know, testimony, witness. The Greek word is martyrios. It means witness. It's where our modern word martyr comes from. Because John the Baptist himself is the martyr. That's why Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And so, wow, Jesus does not sugarcoat it. John gave his life as a witness to the light. And so others have followed as victims of violence and witness to the light. That's a tough one for Catholics to think about that, how it is that we witness to the light. Because I think every Christian who has ever given his life for the gospel probably did not think it would be him. Those are words to think about as we prepare for Christmas, the cost of being a disciple. So this is Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. <laughs>